I don't know if joy is the most appropriate word to describe what playwriting brings me. There are times when joy appears. So does fulfillment, connectedness, relief, self-respect. There are plenty of negative words, I feel, too, but I don't want to give them power by naming them. I think a lot about what playwriting brings me in those times of career quiet when I am not hearing much from the field about my work. To be honest, this tends to be the majority of the time. So why do I keep going? I assume we all ask ourselves that question at some point. I can't imagine being a playwright and not questioning my purpose from time to time, but I am sure there must be one or two of you out there, somewhere, clicking away at a computer, perfectly content to write and send off, and write and send off, constant and unquestioning like the tides. I am not like the tides. I'm like a meerkat burrowing and then peeking out of my hole, looking left and right to see if anybody has noticed me yet. Each play is another little hole in the ground. Each hole is where I sleep, where I dream, where I hide things. Does the meerkat experience joy, fulfillment, connectedness, relief, self-respect? Do they feel seen? Will they ever stop digging? And I wonder if they do, are they still meerkats? Over the years, I've made friends with a lot of playwrights, most of whom I've admired. I've been inspired by many. I look up to a lot of them with envy. Others I've seen struggling and hoped for them to keep pushing, keep writing. I have seen some of them throughout the years drop out of the theater, some because the lure of film and television was stronger and better paying, some because the pain of constant rejection and competition was just too much. I remember feeling pain for them when I learned they'd stepped away, or I simply noticed over time they weren't digging holes anymore. It made me feel sad. What about all their stories left untold? Then I think again about the feelings playwriting brings me and realize that might just be me. Pain and rejection and hatred of competition? Sure, I'm right there. But the other feelings I feel still overpower them. I know it doesn't work that way for everybody. And that fact used to upset me. But now I wonder if I'm just a slow learner? Did the writers who left playwriting come to understand something I don't? Is there some other better feeling to be found away from the theater? Can I, a meerkat, become something else entirely? Of course I can. And I want everybody to move toward that which brings them joy, or at the very least, away from the things that bring them pain. And I can't speak for anybody else, but I think if I do what they did and move away from playwriting one day, 
I think I'll still be a meerkat. Just one that does something else other than digging holes. And I'm sure, regardless of what I do, I'll still be poking my head up, looking left and right to see if anybody has noticed me yet. Hi everybody, my name is Brian James Polak. Welcome to The Subtext, a podcast where playwrights talk about being playwrights and all the stuff that goes along with being playwrights. Sometimes we solve crimes and share recipes too. This month, I share with you my conversation with Wallace Shawn. I honestly can't believe I had the chance to talk to him. I really never imagined it would even be an option. And then, boom. There he is, right in front of me. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I assume some of you are genuinely interested in hearing playwrights talk about stuff, and if that sounds like you, go and subscribe to this pod so you can have these episodes blasted into your devices in the future automatically. And if you're interested in keeping in touch with the subtext, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So... A few weeks ago, I heard about Gideon Media producing audio versions of Wallace Shawn's plays The Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors. I was psyched just to imagine I'd have the chance to listen to them. I never thought I could interview him, but here we are. I'm a lucky playwright to have been able to chat with a legendary writer and actor, and you are the beneficiary of my good fortune. You'll hear us chat about the production of Peter Pan that he describes as perverse, yet inspiring. We talk about many other things, including the advice his father gave him when Wally told him he wanted to be a playwright, and his yearning for recognition as a writer when most see him as an actor. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on Saturday, June 19th, 2021. taping this right yeah uh the audio right but but you can edit it oh for sure and i probably i probably will because i have a uh, a tendency to stammer through questions oh and i want to make myself sound smart and articulate so i will i'll edit that out in the end excellent <laughs> but uh, i mean you'll you. edit me too so I sound smart and articulate. I'll I'll do my I'll do my best. I make no I make no promises of the end result. All right, <laughs> great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. But I mean, I I could restate my point if I'm trying to say something and I get totally confused. Oh, you can restate it. You can take multiple takes. Yeah. Yeah. Good because I I'm easily confused. I'm a playwright and I talk to other playwrights about playwriting. Wow. And that's the whole point of this thing that we're doing. Uh, I'm not a journalist. I'm just a person that writes plays who has a deep 
fascination with other playwrights and creative process and how playwrights came to be, essentially. Wow, but I'm rather secretive, so. Okay, so. I uh, mean, I, I <laughs> reveal any of the things you want to know, but I might, inadvertently. <laughs> All right, well, we'll I'm see. Telling you that because if someone, you know, says, well, how do you write your plays? I tend to, uh, you know, be mysterious, but but that's part of the yes. I'm just telling you. Yeah, no, I get that, and I think I think my interest is more about uh, not how you write plays. You know, I'm a playwright too, and I know that that's a thing that just it happens how it happens, right? You can't tell somebody that kind of the magic that happens in your mind. Uh, but I'm interested in sort of getting to know how you became who you are as a writer. Oh, uh, that's 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 what's fascinating to me to talk about to talk about that. Uh, I and I obsess over. I mean, we'll get into what I obsess over through my through my questions. <laughs> I guess a good place to start would be when did you first encounter theater? growing up? Well, I think that I first, I think my mother took me to a play that didn't have a great influence on me, Jack and the Beanstalk, when I was maybe four, something like that. Then she took me to something that, that did, I think, change my life. I saw, the the play version of Peter Pan with uh, Jean Arthur, an unbelievably sexy woman playing a boy and flying. Boris Karloff was the uh, father and Captain Hook. And uh, just the sheer perversity of it, I think, uh, changed me and influenced me. And then very shortly afterwards, um, or at the same time or earlier, because I'm not positive, I was in a Christmas pageant at school in my very first year in school. I was in a New York City private school where they had a very nice theater, extremely nice little theater. Uh, that would be the end. I mean, if any of us could have our plays done there, we'd be very happy. Uh, you know, much, much better than the sort of converted buildings that were never meant to be theaters that your plays and mine have mostly been in in New York City. But a very nice, uh, theater and there was a couple who were uh, from England who ran the theater in that school and there was very wonderful lighting and I played a shepherd and I think the lighting itself was enough to I don't know win me over to theater I, I so that uh, that's how that's the beginning for me 
So what was it about, you mentioned the perversion of the Peter Pan that you saw for, for like a, a younger you, what, like, what was, like, what was that exactly, you know? Well, there was something, I mean, Gene Arthur, you've probably seen in the movies, um, very extremely sensual in a weird way though. Uh, kind of intelligent, cool sexiness. She wasn't even playing a woman though. She was playing a boy and she wasn't a regular boy. She was a boy who could fly and who did fly. Uh, you know, this was not the humdrum daily life that one knew. Uh, and, and the way, of course, theater, I find, I don't know, I've always, I, lighting is, is very, very appealing to me, even though I never learned about the technical aspects of theater, know nothing about it. Um, but I, I uh, as I got older, I did puppet shows, which had pretty elaborate lighting using Christmas tree lights, colored lights, very exciting. And so Peter Pan, also, if I'm not wrong, it had, maybe I am wrong, but I think it had like scrims where you, it looked like this was the wall of a building, but then it, you could see through it. Maybe I'm confusing it with, I don't know, the Nutcracker. <laughs> so it was sort of like the, the, the perversion on top of the, uh, the magic of theater. It all was one thing. Right. Yeah, so this was great too. It was terrific. At what point, at what point did you think, oh, maybe this is something I could, I, you know, I could make a life in this? It's a little bit hard to answer that, but uh, when I was 10, I had a very wonderful teacher who, uh, said to me, uh, we had a serious talk and she said, well, you're, you're the class clown. Actually, there were two of us. Chevy Chase was in my class and Chevy was a more physical clown doing many of the things for which he, he later uh, became acclaimed. Uh, so Chevy and I were really both the class clowns in a way, but she said to me, uh, Wally, you're the class clown, but I think, you know, there's more to you than that. Read this book and write a play based on this book. And the book was a biography of Socrates. So I wrote a play in which, guess what, I played Socrates. I chose, guess what, the circumstances of my death where I drank the hemlock. And I got my friends to play Aristotle, Plato, my disciples. Uh, and that play I became, I mean, that 
let's say was a hit. I mean, if you want to put it in grown-up terms, people were very impressed with this play. And well, it's obvious that the rest of my life followed from that because I still write semi-philosophical plays, which this was, it had a lot of thinking in it. And uh, I played the central character. Uh, you know, I mean, even if I were to try to deny that my life had anything to do with that play, that would be, anybody else would say, well, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> Clearly that was, you know, your destiny. And then after that, I, I, I've always liked, I mean, I had the opportunity to see a lot of wonderful plays because I was, there's no denying it. I come from a privileged New York background and my, my, uh, I came from the background where I could afford to go to see plays. And to, so I saw a lot of good plays when I was a kid and incredible performances that I still remember well, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and then when I was a little bit older, 13 and 14, that happened to be the time that off-Broadway was really beginning. So I saw The Iceman Cometh of uh, Eugene O'Neill with Jason Robarts when I was, say, 13. Then I saw the next year, the first American production of Long Day's Journey Into Night when I was 14, also with Jason Robarts and with Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. And, uh, and I saw Endgame, the first production of Endgame at the Cherry Lane Theater in New York, directed by Alan Schneider and Jose Quintero directing the O'Neill play. So these, this was my adolescence, but it was also the time of, uh, you know, that these things actually happened. And, and, and I read all of O'Neill's plays. There was a wonderful book that had nine of his plays, which I read cover to cover and drooled over. And uh, I don't know, now I wasn't thinking Yes, when I grow up, I'm going to do X. I, you know, I don't think I really thought about it. Uh, and then I, you know, at later when I was by, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 20, I had no thought I would go into theater at all. But, but do you do you think it was reading these O'Neill plays and seeing them, and having this experience of writing the Socrates play that kind of planted the seed that in the future this might be a thing that you do? Well, I wrote a play with a friend when I was 13. I wrote a few plays, but I wrote a pretty serious one with a friend uh, who now teaches history at UCLA, a woman who also, I think, read all of uh, O'Neill's plays. We were, we had, she had a great influence on me and to, and then I started when I was about 12 doing puppet shows with my younger brother, who was a composer who's 
now composer, was then. We did these plays, these, these puppet shows until I was quite old, you know, about 23 or 24, I, I was theoretically a grown-up. And uh, my brother eventually was trying to be a serious composer and found this not helpful to him and uh, noticed that we were grown-ups, which I would not have. Uh, so he said, well, let's leave it at this because we kept doing I mean, our last show was about Wittgenstein because I was very interested in that and studying that at the time. And so our, our puppet shows were ambitious, to put it mildly. And uh, that was the last one. And uh, then a year later, I wrote my first play that was really a play. And at that time, I decided I want to go into this for my life. In the in the years leading up to this, so the the high school and post high school, what was your sort of like focus of your education and career ambitions? Well, I wanted to. When I was uh, sixteen, I turned against artistic things. I thought that. To, it was immoral to just be uh, having fun playing while the world was suffering. And I've gone back and forth about this through my whole life. But when you're young, you can go back and forth. And uh, it has a certain reality. By the time, well, let's say you're my age, I could decide today, no, I've been on the wrong path. I want to be Secretary General of the United Nations. I couldn't get the job. Uh, Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in other words, at a certain point, you you can't really change back in it. But, but basically, yeah, between 16 and say 24, I was interested in becoming a, let's say a civil servant. Maybe an, I did know a man who worked at the UN whom I revered and uh, thought maybe I could uh, work at the UN. He was uh, English, but he, he was an international civil servant. His loyalty was to uh, the world, not to England. Uh, maybe a diplomat. Uh, and when I was in college, I, you know, I remember telling my roommates, well, maybe I'll run for office one day. And they uh, laughed. And I don't know if they laughed because they thought it would be ludicrous or just because I was a kid in college with them and it was ridiculous to think that way. But uh, they did laugh. And, and I do think, looking back on it, that uh, I could have become a civil servant or a diplomat, but I might have been uh, fired. Uh, I might have ended up uh, being difficult or, or uh, 
disagreeing with the, I mean, I, I'm sure I could never have become an American uh, civil servant or diplomat. I'm sure I would have quit. <laughs> and uh, working at the UN, if they would have hired me, uh, I don't know. Maybe I could have, I don't know. I still, obviously, I compare my life that I've actually led with that one that I fantasized that I could have led. I, I mean, I think about it every day. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I wanted to help the world. And uh, so that's not something that I laugh at uh, today. Was there any sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but was there any motivation coming from your family to like nudge you in a certain direction career-wise? Um, hmm. Well, the, the, I'll give you, I mean, the true answer is a little bit indirect, but uh, my father uh, worked, uh, in an office and went to the office. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I had said to him that I wanted to write. And, uh, well, I mean, I, it was, I wrote a play. And when I wrote the play, I was 24, 25. And I thought, yes, this is, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And he said, well, if you want to be a writer, don't, I mean, obviously I was not making a living as a writer. He said, don't get, I don't remember what words he said, but basically don't get a good job. You're an ambitious person. You'll try to do your best in whatever job you take. You're employers will like your work, they'll promote you, and they will uh, try to keep you and trap you, and your writing will go by the wayside. That was his advice. Don't get a good job. Uh, and uh, I think, well, it happened to him, basically. He had wanted to write, and uh, he had to uh, taken a job in the depression. Actually, my mother got him the job, but he, he kept the job and he was, you know, you could say promoted. He stayed in the same place for 53 years. And uh, he, he, he tried to leave in, in 1948, but he, they, he was training the guy who was supposed to uh, take over his job. And that guy supposedly slipped in the bathtub and hurt himself. And uh, so my father uh, didn't leave. And uh, so that was his advice. And I, I followed it. And it, I mean, that's really generous advice from a from a parent to you know to send their kid off into this mysterious and unforgiving world of the theater 
that might result in uh, struggling to get bills paid and, and rent paid. And all yeah, that. I mean, I, I, I followed his advice, but I didn't pay the price because by chance, somebody offered me a job as an actor and I took it and I found that I could make a living at that. So I wasn't working in an office and I wasn't working that many weeks in a year, but I was able, I was not faced with the choice of leading a sub bourgeois life. I was able to, uh, I, I mean, I, I was not, uh, it's hard to compare economic levels, but uh, I would say my life was um, economically less easy than my parents after they became established. They had many, many very hard years. Uh, I heard you say uh, that you, you lived a middle-class life, but if you're being mean about it, upper middle-class. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, you know, I, uh, depends on how unmiddle-class the person talking about it would be. I mean, there would, yeah, I mean, I, 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 and of course I do certain things as a matter of course that, uh, you know, I think my mother was 75 years old before she ever heard of a cappuccino. Because that's just not, that wasn't part of that world. Uh, the food that my parents ate was just so humble and simple by choice, because that's what they had. That's what Americans, I mean, they didn't, I mean, the bread that they would have would be packaged, sliced bread. They didn't know from French bread or Italian bread, which to me is normal. So in a certain way, you know, they, their life was, was humbler, but I've done, you know, very, very well really, and, and have not, uh, you know, I, I certainly, I uh, began my theatrical life with in, in Andre Gregory's not, well, as an associate of Andre Gregory's company of actors. And so I'm, you know, familiar with the, um, the life of people from those companies, such as Mabu Mines and uh, the Worcester Group, which was formerly the performance group. And a lot of those people led difficult lives economically. And uh, so I frequently ask myself, uh, well, if that, if I had had to choose really, if I was 40 years old and I could see that for the rest of my life, I would be, uh, you know, living very, very humbly compared to the way I grew up in order to stick with my writing, uh, could I stick it out or, or would it be 
too difficult for me. I, I, I didn't have to face the choice because of this good luck I had of, that people, you know, people had not liked my plays or had even hated them. Uh, but when I became an actor, people thought, oh, he's funny. What did you think when people started to respond to your acting in that way? I only, at the at that time, I only thought, well, this is funny. This is a, you know, crazy fluke. And um, maybe I can make some money out of it. That'd be incredible. Then the thought occurred to me, maybe I can support my life as a weird playwright by this acting. And then, you know, after a while, I sort of thought, hey, I, I'm, I can do this. I want a better part, you know, that type of thing. Was there a time when acting ever became an obstacle to writing or vice versa? Well, I don't think acting ever became an obstacle to writing. Writing has led me to being fired by some agents because I, I, I've always put my writing first, really. And, and, and also I have worked with uh, Andre Gregory who rehearses plays on a very relaxed schedule over years and, and months. And uh, even the things that didn't have to do with my writing, like uh, being in Uncle Vanya, I sort of think of them as my, working with Andre has been sort of part of my theater work. Uh, and so I've, I've put that ahead of my acting career. So I have, you know, annoyed various agents by saying, uh, oh, I'm not, I don't want to work, you know, don't, don't find me anything between April and December. I'm uh, going to be doing other things. Well, that's considered in the world of acting to mean that you're not serious. Uh, I mean, in the world of, of acting for pay, that's considered, you know, that you're not serious. You're, you're, and uh, worse than that is uh, when December rolls around, then to say, I'm desperate, I need money, find me something. And worse than that is they find you something and then you say, but that's disgusting. I can't do that. Uh, so I have been fired as an actor by agents because of my writing. I think I've never spent, I'm not that successful. So if I had been a tremendously successful actor, I mean, if I'd been Robert De Niro, I don't know if I could have written anything because I wouldn't have had time. I would be going, you know, if I decided to go that way, if I'd said, yes, the, you know, I, I can't resist these parts or these, these paychecks, I, uh, or if I'd somehow thought, well, acting has become more important to me even than writing, uh, you know, then I, I, I would have had to give up writing. But, but in fact, it's been a matter of a few weeks a year and uh, I've gotten away with it, you know. 
do you recall what your what your view of success was when you started out and you said I'm going to be a playwright and and you and you you know that's the trajectory you put yourself on what was what was success to you back then I didn't know much about the reality of of theater or about the reality of anything else I mean as I admitted I had a privileged sheltered childhood in which by the way the issue of making a living was never mentioned my parents never said, Wallace, you'll have to make a living one day. Uh, nor did they ever say, don't put your feet on that sofa. It cost $1,000. I mean, they never talked about money. So, uh, I don't know. I didn't have a, I, I just, I suppose I thought I'll write plays. Everybody's going to love them. And uh, I'll make a living with that. Uh, I didn't even think, would the plays be off Broadway or would they be on Broadway? Uh, I just, I thought people would like them. I, I mean, it didn't come, I didn't realize that people would not like them. And that then came as like a, what? Total surprise. Um, and I, I, uh, well, growing up, I did know a playwright, S.N. Berman, who, who, uh, uh, wrote very, very charming Broadway plays, lived a, I suppose, upper middle class life. And, uh, I don't know, maybe I thought I could live like him. I, I, I wasn't thinking about it, just wasn't worried about it. You mentioned now you 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 said uh, you're not particularly successful and and I'm I'm curious how you define that because I guess it's all point of view right like totally what's your point of view on it well my point of view let's be frank I mean you know I'll be dead soon so that it doesn't honest I'm not sick I mean I'm just mean that I'm quite elderly according to the statistics, I don't feel that elderly, but I mean, statistically, I'm likely to be dead soon. So I don't really care that much what you or anyone thinks of me. I, I was, uh, I grew up surrounded by well-known writers. Uh, I don't mean they were walking in and out of the house every day, but, uh, a few of them walked in and out a few times and and I knew some well-known writers. To be absolutely frank, uh, I was unbelievably ambitious from the time I was six years old. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but but I I was ambitious without having to even feel ambitious. It's just a fact. And I think when I thought, well, I'm going to be a playwright, I knew that my plays were not in the Broadway tradition. And I, and the way my life has turned out, I never thought, oh, I'll try to write more commercial plays. I just have never, 
by the time such a thought could even have crossed my mind, I was already an actor and had another plan for making a living. I, and I never don't, I don't think I ever thought, I'll bet I could write a very successful commercial play. So I think I thought, well, I'll be Beckett. I'll be Pinter. You know, uh, I'll be Eugene O'Neill. I mean, these guys were very avant-garde. O'Neill certainly was in his time. Uh, Pinter is unbelievably avant-garde. And, and I, well, they did very, very well. So I suppose to me, ambition was, uh, you know, to be well-known, really, to be part of the national conversation, to be, to be known not just by people who like avant-garde theater, but uh, to be known as one of the American writers. Uh, you know, Arthur Miller obviously was not an avant-garde writer, but, but uh, his plays were part of the national conversation, let's say. He was taken seriously as an American writer. And, uh, you know, his plays were household names. I mean, so, you know, anybody who will hear this would have utter contempt for me as well as laughing at me because it's so ludicrous. But yes, that to me is what I would think of as uh, uh, what I would think of as being successful. Now, I have a lot of friends who are playwrights who aren't as well known as me, and they would be particularly nauseated by hearing these things, and I hope they don't hear it. <laughs> when you started, I'm not sure if this moment ever happened for you, but was there, was there this moment uh, when you started to write, really for, in a serious way at, at 24, 25, uh, where you, recognized your own self-aptitude for it, where you were like, oh yeah, I want to do it and I see I can, I can do it. Yes. I mean, when I wrote my first play, I thought, yeah, this is, this is great. Uh, you know, this is, I, this is the first thing I've done in my life that, uh, I think is is uh, outstanding. I, I feel I have talent for this, and and it, and I wouldn't have necessarily needed to say, and I want to do this for the rest of my life. That's a very strange thing to say, and I don't know why I felt that, but I did, and I don't know why I've stuck with that. But and I don't know if it's some kind of pig-headedness, stubbornness, or the fact that I, in a way, I'm still hungry. I mean, I'm quite old, and yet I'm, I, I, I've made these podcasts and paid for them with money that I should have been saving for my old age, because I still want to be accepted, still want to be recognized as an actual American writer who should be taken seriously. And I suppose I felt that when I was 24 and, and I've, it hasn't really quite happened. And I'm still hungry in a way that uh, I don't suppose Neil Simon really was at my age, but maybe he was. 
I mean, Arthur Miller was, I think, still writing and wrote some pretty good things when he was old, when he was my age. You talked about uh, being known as a writer. When did you start getting known as an actor? Well, immediately. Was I mean, I, I started acting when I was about 35. I was immediately better known, immediately. And did you, did you welcome that recognition? Well, it was just funny at first, as I said, because I didn't think it would continue. Uh, and then, yes, I mean, I welcomed it because uh, my little scheme was succeeding. And uh, it, uh, in, in later decades, only in later decades, there is uh, an unforgivable sort of jealousy of myself that comes along when I felt uh, envious of that guy Envious of the fact that uh, the actor was pleasing people and, you know, uh, people were making a fuss of me for something that was not really as important to me as, as uh, my writing, which they'd literally never heard of. Uh, now it's like, it's just, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, in reality, there's nothing odd about it or ironic but to me personally there is and and I you know I'm delighted when people compliment me and I'm you know people who don't want some kind of attention don't go into theater in any department except maybe stage management I mean or uh, you know I I you know I, I, of course, I, I'm delighted if someone comes up to me on the street and said they loved a movie that I was in and they thought I was great. And I mean, that's just great. I'm really pleased. But, but sometimes there is an undertone for me of sadness of, oh, God, wouldn't it be great if, if they came up and said that about my avant-garde plays? Well, that's impossible. I mean, uh, we would be living in a very, very, very different world if uh, those people appreciated grasses of a thousand colors. I mean, that would be a world, I think a better world than the real world that we have, but it's an impossible thing in our current world, uh, can't happen. Because of the nature of the, the, the film, My Dinner with Andre was, you, you know, you played Wallace Shawn, Andre played Andre Gregory. Uh, you refer to real people in your, in your lives in the film. Did people approach you as if they knew the real you after having seen that movie? Quite a few people assumed that was the real me. And, um, I suppose even more assumed it was the real Andre, which, uh, you know, it had some truth in it, but I didn't want to be that character. And I didn't take it as a compliment. If, I mean, some people came up and said, oh, he was, what a jerk. I, I agree with you about everything, which was not a nice thing for me, although they meant it to be. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I represent a kind of complacency that, uh, 
I don't really approve of in real life. I, I mean, I think I'm more hostile to that kind of complacency today than I was when I wrote the movie, but I was trying to bury that guy and, and not be him, you know. And I wasn't really him. I mean, that guy wouldn't have written the plays I'd already written, you know. Mm -hmm. Did you always intend for that to be a film? Yes. Uh, well, maybe a TV film, you know, but uh, yes, I never thought it would be a play. Yeah. The, the only reason I really ask, I mean, because it feels purely like a film to me. At the end, there is, uh, there are a couple, like the Royal Court and Atlas Theater were thanked at the in the credits, which made me wonder if this was a piece that may have been workshopped theatrically before. Well, we, um, Atlas Theater Company is the name of Andre's nonprofit. Uh, but we did do the play at, uh, I mean, Louis Mal, our director, had rehearsed with us for many, many months, including on video, which at the time was rather innovative. And he said, well, I'd like you to do it uh, in front of an audience uh, before we film it. We were scheduled to film it in December. And uh, he said, I think you should do it to four people in a theater. So we did it at uh, in a small theater, the, the theater upstairs at the Royal Court in London, which was run uh, by Max Stafford Clark, who had done plays of mine and who, who I, I approached him and said, we'd like to uh, do this in front of an audience. And uh, the purpose was really to uh, an audience, it's an interesting fact, an audience kind of shows you or tells you the shape of something. What is the climax? What is, what is the most important moment? What is the least important moment? Uh, very interesting. Now, Louis saw us do it there and was actually sort of enraged at our performance, uh, particularly mine, I think, uh, because we couldn't resist or I couldn't resist the temptation to show off for the audience and, and maybe uh, the subtlety that he was trying to inculcate in us over many months was lost, certainly by me, because it's hard I mean, I am the class clown and I, it's hard for me not to show off. Uh, and when Andre has directed me, he has tried to, you know, get me not to show off for the audience. Uh, but we did learn a lot from doing it. We did it for three weeks and uh, it was enjoyable really, except for Louis attacking us. Uh, but the intention was essentially rehearsal for the, for filming. Yes, we filmed it immediately afterwards. Yeah, like, you know, 10 days or two weeks later, we were making the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also, it sort of, oh, it just solidified things. 
and yeah, it was it was excellent uh, preparation for making the movie. Of course, the acting style calmed down a bit. <laughs> made the movie mm -hmm. with Louis being right there, obviously, no audience. Are there projects or there stories that uh, you've wanted to tell, to write, and have yet to do it? Well, I don't really work that way. I mean, I don't have a story and then tell it. It works the other way around, if anything, for me. I mean, I've never sort of thought, I want to write about a guy who, who teaches, who invents something that helps animals eat their own kind. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, uh, I, I, I start writing and uh, something eventually is written, but I don't, so no, I mean, in other words, mm -hmm. I don't, think, oh my God, I would love to write a play about capital punishment. Mm -hmm. um, I've just never done it that way. There, you know, I wrote an opera with my brother and I'd love to uh, do another project with him before I die. It would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, I mean, with, with music. But I, no, I don't really, but, and yes, I would like to write more. It would be incredible. I mean, obviously, you know, and just my, I mean, Carol Churchill wrote these three short, unbelievable plays that she did uh, at the Royal Court last year. At, she wrote those when she was, I think, a year older than I am now, or exactly the same age. I mean, you know, so I'm thinking, well, if she could do that, maybe I could write something. But a lot of writers lose their, maybe, I don't know if they lose their talent or they, I don't know what they lose, but uh, a lot of people stop writing. So I'm but I would love to write more. I mean, and I'm, and I'm, I know I'm still capable of writing, you know, essays and emails, but I love to write, you know, another theatrical piece. Oh, it would be thrilling. So, so then what motivates you to sit with the, you know, pen and paper or computer, however you do it, to to put words down. Well, that's that's a deep psychological question. That uh, my insight into myself is, uh, you know, my knowledge of myself is restricted to a few stray comments that my girlfriend has made over the decades. I don't know much about myself. I don't really know why I, I think I, it's not fun to sit there for two hours and write nothing. So I, I, uh, I mean, in the past, 
I would say that after writing each play, which has taken me say between three and five years, I usually took a year or two off where I didn't even think about writing. If I feel capable of it, I'll sit down and, but I mean, yes, I have often spent hours and come up with nothing. Uh, I'm very motivated to write because that's, that's um, become a part of how I function as a human being. And certainly, I mean, I noticed, I mean, during the pandemic, I was quite frantic to write something every day, but I didn't think I'd be capable of writing uh, anything for theater. I was writing basically political stuff. But if I was not able to spend a part of a day doing that, I, I experienced a feeling of agitation. It's become part of my biological mechanism for survival. I will survival is an exaggeration maybe, but, but I did become very agitated. Is there anything that you're looking forward to? Well, I mean, I'm looking forward to, uh, to dinner. I mean, I've, we laid in some very nice corn and, uh, I happen to know that uh, if I live until dinner time, there are going to be a couple of lovely ears of corn in my future. What can I say? I've had good luck in life. I, I'm sorry if it's a. Uh, I what am I going to say? I I have had very good luck in in my life. I. Uh, am uh, happy with the person that I live with rather than uh, living in anguish and thinking of how I want to escape. I mean, I, 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 and I've, I've, you know, had good jobs as an actor and, and uh, made enough to live on happily and I've written what I wanted. So I, I, you know, I've had good luck. I'm waiting for the bad things to begin. And, uh, you know, the way destiny is organized, frequently the bad things come at the end, which is terribly unfair when you can't, you know, you, you really don't have the resilience to deal with them. But, uh, I've had good luck. What am I going to tell you? Yes, there are plenty of things that, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I've had a very good job as an actor for the last four years. But I had to think this year, do I want to do that job? Or do I want to, because if I do, I have to take a risk of death. And I didn't have to think about it for very long at all. I, I, called them and said, please, you know, 
I can't, I'm not going to come. Uh, not coming to LA, I'm not going to do the job. Mm. I want to live. But anyway, uh, I'll let you go. You're, we're already over time. Um, I, I'm so appreciative of you giving me over an hour. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be talking to you. Well, you, you're, I mean, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, incredible. So thank you so much. Uh, I mean, I feel I can say anything to you and maybe I've said too much. I don't <laughs> The audio version of The Designated Mourner comes out June 25th, 2021, and Grasses of a Thousand Colors on July 9th, 2021. The legendary Andre Gregory directs both audio six-parters. Find these free on demand across all podcast platforms such as iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, etc. Wallace Shawn and I didn't get to spend a lot of time talking about these projects, but he did mention to me he made some revisions to these plays. So check them out, even if you think you know them already. Music in this episode is from Zylo Zico. The theme song to the subtext is by International Pen Pal. The subtext is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thanks, as always, to the editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine, Rob Weiner-Kent. K.J. Jarbo is the associate producer of the subtext. This episode was produced and edited by me. Like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Rate and comment on the show wherever you can. And feel free to call or email if you've got something you really want to say. Our email address is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Venetians by Matt Barbot. And I, th I, th I think that's how to pronounce his last name. My mind wants it to be Barbo, but it, Twitter gives me the impression it's Barbot. Anyway, The Venetians by Matt Barbot. I don't know if I love this play because I've been teaching a lot of Shakespeare recently, or maybe it's simply because it's a great play. I guess that's up to you to decide. <laughs>